Welcome to The Detour, a show about people and ideas. I'm Adam Davis. Last week, we ventured into national divides by talking with David French about political, cultural, and social splits, and with Emma Green about religion and democracy. Both David and Emma were concerned about national trends toward greater division, but also hopeful about efforts to build cohesion, especially on the local level. So today we're looking closer to home, and we're talking with three people who will help us understand, and maybe even work on, how Oregonians can recognize what and how much we share. In this episode, we take a look at the ways our state is divided and at mechanisms that widen those divides. Our guests come from different backgrounds. A Malheur refuge fish and wildlife worker turned mediator, an expert on measuring values and beliefs who has lived in multiple places around the state, and a city councilor, an artist and boxer in Ontario, Oregon. All three agree that we have plenty to work on, but they also think there's a lot to be hopeful about. But before we get to them, I wonder what you think makes us divided, if at all. And I wonder also what makes you most hopeful about our capacity to work across divides. As we get ready to dive in, I want to ask you to think about how we can move beyond limited, too quick understanding of each other, beyond the need to be right. What does it take to suspend what we think we already know? to build trust, to develop relationships with those we think we're different from? What does it take to have a genuine, open conversation? And why can that be so hard? When thinking about this episode, one organization stood out, High Desert Partnership. High Desert Partnership is an organization based in Harney County that is in the business of finding common ground. Before an issue comes to a head, HDP tries to get people talking with each other. Those who want to be part of the solution take a seat at the table, and that table is devoted to listening, sharing ideas, and finding each other's expertise, ensuring that everyone is heard with the goal of finding an agreeable path forward. HDP focuses on southeastern Oregon's hardest challenges, restoring forests and wetlands, mitigating wildfire, creating opportunities for youth, and growing local economies, and it takes a long view toward solving these challenges. During the Bundy Brothers' occupation of the Malheur Refuge in 2016, HDP received some attention for how their collaborative work helped Harney County weather what quickly became a nationally visible and locally wrenching storm. But HDP isn't really interested in headlines or in crisis management. They work steadily and patiently, often in the background, to get people talking with and listening to each other, to pursue collaboration instead of litigation, and to create conditions for everyone to have a say and be heard. Along with Gary Marshall, Chad Carr just founded High Desert Partnership in 2005. Chad and Gary still drive HDP as board leaders, and Brenda Smith directs a growing group of staff members. I should mention that I've been fortunate to be on the HDP board since 2020, and in that role I've had a window into how they do tough work across divides. I wanted to ask Chad to say more about HDP's work. So we spoke by phone in March 2022. I live in Burns, Oregon. Uh, been in Burns now for about 25 years or so. Uh, I've retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where I was the manager of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, and I've been working on uh, collaborative processes, trying to bridge divides between people that uh, either had failed relationships uh, from previous interactions 
or had lack of interactions and had no relationships even to begin with, trying to figure out ways to bring those diverse interests together to come up with uh, some creative solutions that are better suited to the time and space that we live in today. And so can I just ask, uh, formally for a while, your employer was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but the way you described what you've been working on was working between people and with people. So, so how did you go from fish and wildlife work to people work? What's the relationship there? Yeah, you know, when I uh, got my degree in uh, wildlife ecology, uh, I did not envision that I would be spending almost all of my time trying to figure out how to work with people and to bring people together to work with each other. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as I was moving through my career, uh, you know, I first started working out a lot with, you know, wildlife itself, which is what I thought I was going to be doing my entire career. But then it came very clear that you needed to figure out how to engage with those different interest groups and get them to work with each other if you were going to be able to implement anything on the ground that had a chance of being sustained over time. And you said right at the start, you talked about failed relationships or lack of relationships. And how did you first start running into what you diagnosed or saw as failed relationships or lack of, like how did those show up and what are some examples of those? So in the land management arena, um, the the symptom of failed relationships or lack of relationships is trying to solve issues primarily through litigation. Mm. And when you use that as your primary tool, and I'm not saying that some cases it's not appropriate, but when it becomes the primary tool, uh, there's always a winner and a loser in the outcome of that. And then those feelings and thoughts get carried on into the next issue that's trying to be addressed. And it just kind of becomes self-perpetuating and it divides people. Um, the, the failed relationships, what I saw when I first came here was people had interactions in the past and sometimes that spanned decades, but those interactions uh, were negative. And so they had failed relationships at that point in time, and it was really hindering them from working together to solve issues. And then in other cases, there were no relationships at all, even though there should have been or needed to be a relationship. And that was in a lot of cases where you had, you know, external uh, stakeholders concerned about issues. And then you had the local community, and there really was no interaction between those, those different interest groups. And so it made it very difficult to find solutions that you could implement on the ground. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there are more divisions within Harney County or between Harney County and other parts of Oregon? I don't think there's any more divisions in Harney County than there is in any other community. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor do I think there's any more of a division between Harney County and Portland than there is anywhere else. You know, if, if there's been opportunities in the past where there has been direct interactions and those have been negative, uh, then you need to create some type of a safe space for people to, to work through future issues. But most likely what I see most of the time, even here locally, there hasn't been any interaction in the past. And so once again, you create that mechanism so those conversations can happen 
so they do build those relationships and understanding. In my mind, or what I see anyway, people are people no matter where they're at, and we all have certain behaviors that we tend to rely on, and they'll seem to be pretty consistent no matter where you look. It's just a matter of getting people to be able to interact in a safe space uh, where they can build positive relationships. I wonder if we could go into a really sort of tough example as a way of thinking about failed relationships, lack of relationships, and maybe differences and divides, and that is the occupation of the Malheur Refuge. And I know you were there and working before, through, and after on relationships while that was happening. And I guess, can you explain, even from this vantage point, what you saw happening that led to that? And then we'll move into how to work against it or through it. But how does something like that develop? And not even something like that. How did that happen as you understand it? I I think, and there's probably lots of different ways to look at that particular situation, but that one didn't come from the local community. Mm. What I saw there was a symptom of what's happening at a much larger scale nationally. You had individuals that uh, had concerns, particularly about government, and they were looking for a place where they thought that they could not only gain national attention to their concerns, but also make change. You know, if you go to any community, there's always a few individuals in each community that have had issues in the past uh, with the government. Well, in this particular case, what I saw was people outside the community that were wanting to move this particular agenda. They linked up with a small group of community members here that portrayed a much different picture of the community than what it really was. Mm-hmm. So they, they felt confident that they could move their agenda forward here. And they, you know, of course, Everybody knows the story how they occupied the refuge, but that generate the national attention that they were seeking, but it did not result in any change. And I think, you know, what they weren't counting on was the level of collaboration that this particular community had been working on for some time prior to the occupation. And that I think actually enabled the communities to survive that event. If the High Desert Partnership, in my mind, had not been in place and established prior to that event, I think you would have seen a change happen in the community that that particular group is looking for. But that did not happen. And so, like you mentioned, Adam, we were working on the relationships prior to the occupation. We kept working on them during the occupation, and it continued on after the occupation. So the occupation was a nice media story. Mm-hmm. but it didn't change anything in a negative way in the community. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to work on relationships, uh, especially outside the limelight and outside of a crisis? Like, wh- what does that mean on a day-to-day basis, to work on relationships? For me, it's a lot of one-on-one conversations. And those conversations, you know, my objective isn't to try to 
persuade them to think one way or another. It's more about trying to understand where they're coming from and then thinking about, okay, this is their perspective. How, How does that potentially align with another individual's perspective that most people would look at them as polar opposites, but where's the common ground? And in most cases, uh, what I have found is there's a whole lot more common ground than there is differences. And so if you can set a process up that focuses on that common ground, they then start to chip away at those differences on their own you know, through their own personal conversations. And not to say that they're ever going to totally agree, but at least they can respectfully disagree on a minority of what they need to work on. Mm -hmm. So now I'm imagining, let's say I'm coming into a room and I know what's going to be talked about is, say, uh, the diameter of timber that can be harvested or uh, the use of rangeland and who has access to it and what they might pay for it. Uh, how, how do how do you set things up so that wherever I'm dug in, whatever opinions I have before I come in the room, I'm still open not only to hearing someone else's opinion, but maybe moving a little bit off of what I'm carrying into the room? How do you set something like that up? So, like I said, you know, you start with those one-on-one conversations. And then you, you know, you have an understanding of, of what people's different perspectives are of an, of an issue. I, I think that depends on where you're at as to how those one-on-one conversations happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I first started having some of the one-on-one conversations here locally, there was uh, such a negative history between the Fish and Wildlife Service and the local community, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of um, past hostility that had to be vented. Mm-hmm. And so you had to sit there and listen to that and let them work through that uh, till you got to the point where, where they were willing to actually hear what you're talking about and starting to have a true converse, a dialogue anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you're at that point of having that dialogue with those individuals, um, and it may not always, you know, in many cases, it's not me that's having that dialogue because I'm not the right messenger. That, that's not who uh, they either have a, a past relationship with in a positive way or they respect or whatever it may be. And so you, not only do you figure out who you need to be talking to, but who are the right people to talk to them. And then the, the next step is, how do you start bringing those individuals together, probably outside of some type of formal collaborative meeting? Mm. Uh, and so there's a lot of one-on-one conversations and relationship building that happens between lots of different individuals before you put them in a room together to talk publicly about how they're going to work these issues out. So I want to ask you a little bit about whether what you're trying to do and have been trying to do both on a refuge, uh, like how does that translate to society at large? Do you see the same patterns and possibilities uh, on a place that's thought of as a refuge as you might in society? My short answer to that is absolutely. And the reason why is what I, I, I 
talked about earlier is when you're talking about a national wildlife refuge, what determines the success or failure on those refuges are the decisions that are made and can they or can they not be implemented. And that is all influenced by society. And so if you can make those types of decisions on a national wildlife refuge that make positive change and you can implement and sustain, then I see no reason why you couldn't do that in other segments of society. And, and that's why I believe in organizations like the High Desert Partnership. And maybe, maybe I want to ask you just a little more about the High Desert Partnership. What kind of tool is collaboration and what do you see collaboration creating? Well, collaboration is not a crisis management tool. And, and at least the High Desert Partnership's form of what we call collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if an issue has reached that point of crisis uh, where you already have everybody's attorneys uh, or it's already in the court system, uh, you probably won't have the time necessary or the flexibility to have the necessary conversations to work through that issue with that our form of collaboration. Now, if you can identify uh, an issue that's coming uh, that's important and you can figure out in advance uh, are the right relationships in place or can they be built? Do you have time to put them in place? And then can you acquire the resources you need to support some type of a collaborative conversation around that issue? Then, you know, there's some possibilities that the High Desert Partnership form of collaboration uh, would be successful. Not to say that it fits all of those scenarios, but at least those are kind of some foundational things you need to look at along with other things, but those are kind of the foundation that you need to have in place uh, for the high digital partnerships form of collaboration to be successful. And if you're able to do that, the outcome that we've always had is you don't have winners and losers anymore. You have, uh, and it's, and I wouldn't even call it a win-win. What you have is creative solutions that this diverse group came up with that would never have been available or possible if it wasn't for them having the necessary relationships and that safe space to have the conversation in. So you have talked many times, even in this relatively short conversation about the importance of time. What's the horizon or the span of time that effective collaboration requires? Repeat that last part, Adam. I couldn't hear it. Yeah, what's the horizon or the span of time that effective collaboration requires? It it depends, um, I I guess, uh, on the issue. But the way that the High Desert Partnerships uh, collaboration groups or conversations have evolved to is they're they're somewhat perpetual 
because that a group, you know, they focus on, you know, an issue or a group of issues. And in many cases, you know, you have success, but then there's still more issues. And, and so there's always something more to be done. It's kind of like life in general. There's always more to it. Mm -hmm. And so as things change, even if they're changing for the better, there's still more that can be done. And, and so I ha we haven't had a group yet that formed and then at some point said, yeah, we're done. We, we're going to disband. And so uh, what they have done is evolved from a very specific issue focus to a, a broader scale of focus uh, because they recognize the need that they need to be uh, more balanced in their approach. And as well as they're seeing other issues that, you know, now they have a history of working together and they, they can, they feel that they can solve things together. They're willing to take on other things. The, the way that I does a partnership collaboration is successful. It's not about me. It, it's about all the people that are engaged. They are what make collaboration successful. And so I, I just want to leave you with that, that it's a group effort to make a collaborative outcome be successful. As we thought about this episode, we wanted to talk with people who work across divides, but we also wanted to talk with someone who could step back, give us a sense of the larger landscape in Oregon, a sense of where people seem to agree and disagree, and what accounts for differences and commonalities. For both of these reasons, doing the daily on-the-ground work and stepping back to provide a larger perspective, we reached out to Amory Vogel, the Associate Executive Director of the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center. In this conversation, Amory mentions a study conducted by the OVBC, which indicated that 88% of Oregonians surveyed, people on all ends of the political spectrum, believe that our state is divided. I'm going to say that again. 88% of Oregonians surveyed believe that our state is divided. We spoke to Amory about the nature of these real and perceived Oregon divides, why efforts to bridge them are worthwhile, and how we might go about working on that. I would say that we aren't necessarily divided on more issues. It's just that we're more divided on the issues. Okay. There are even issues that we used to be divided on that now we're in agreement on. Like, for example, homelessness used to be an urban issue. And now statewide Oregonians say that it's the most important issue that they want elected leaders to address. Or wildfires used to be seen as more of a rural issue. And now urban Oregonians care about it as much as rural Oregonians do. Is there an issue where the degree of division among Oregonians stands out to you, or for that matter, the degree of agreement? I think for me, growing up in Oregon, you have this idea of like urban and rural mm -hmm. and that divide. And, and you hear about it from, like, I grew up mostly in urban Oregon. You hear about it from the rural side, you hear about it from the urban side. And this feeling that the other side doesn't care or understand. And what has been really surprising for me in 
The research that we've done at OVBC is just seeing over and over again people from both sides talking about um, the way that issues impact people on the other side and showing compassion and empathy and care for those people, which is not the message that we see in Oregon in public spaces. For example, we did some research on Greater Idaho. And going into this research, I was very nervous because I was pretty sure that either way, no matter what the results showed in any direction, everybody was going to be mad at us. But when we did that research and we got the answers back as to why people thought it was a bad idea for these counties to join Idaho, there were so many people that talked about government services that they were worried people wouldn't have access to anymore from those parts of the state. They talked about concerns about uh, the tax revenue that marijuana has brought to those areas of the state. Mm -hmm. And Idaho, not that long ago, tried to make a constitutional amendment to their state constitution that would make marijuana illegal. So, you know, some of these rural towns that have benefited would lose that benefit. And also this feeling that differences of opinion are important and that even if even people that said, I don't agree with these people, but we need to have their voice mm. in decisions and a diversity of opinions and viewpoints benefits our state. So it sounds like you're trying to help Oregonians understand what fellow Oregonians believe and care about because that self-understanding will be useful for our state? Yes, yes. Um, it's, it's useful for person-to-person -person interactions and understanding. It's useful for organizations that are helping Oregonians to understand what's most important to them, how best to communicate with them, how to be most effective in their work, those things also are just good for our state in general and good decision-making from leadership. Mm. That, that really is our goal, is, is we want to be Oregon's panel. We're here to help Oregonians. And right now, it seems like what they need the most is <laughs> to remember what they have in common. As you've been doing the research and reading the research, mm -hmm. have you been surprised at places where there seem to be points of tension that, that you wouldn't have guessed would be there? Well, I, like I said, I've been in a lot of places in the state, so I have some idea of the things that uh, people disagree on and don't like about other people or parts of the state or ideologies or you name it, school boards. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I have it and I read just like a lot of local news. When you read local news, mm -hmm. what feel like the biggest points of tension that you run into in this state? I guess what has surprised me most recently is um, how intense disagreements about school boards has, has mm -hmm. gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, every, Oregonians all care about children, 
another thing that we're united on, what people feel like is best for kids and education is different. And because they do care about kids so much, it becomes heated. But it's it's gone to a completely different level lately. I worry about what that means for our future. Like, what is going to happen to these kids who are struggling coming out of COVID and we're spending money on disagreements about school district policies mm-hmm. when we should be helping these kids recover. What do you see as the relationship between care and likelihood of agreement? People are definitely more likely to disagree on things that they care a lot about. Because if they care about it with such an intensity, then they're going to have stronger ideas about, you know, how things should be done, um, what outcomes should be. And so when other people have different ideas and they also feel strongly about those ideas because they also care so much about that issue, then we just, we end up with big conflicts, which it does seem also at the same time counterintuitive because they both care so much about this group and that's what unites them, but they can't see that part because they're so invested in what they think is the right way to go about it. I love what you just said about they can't see that part. They can't see the part where they agree. And instead, what they see is the part where they disagree. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of the work you're engaged in is to help them see in a way where they agree, that mm-hmm. understanding the level, like we care about the outdoors, we care about nature and natural resources. Do you feel like uh, you have a sense of what helps people go from the part they disagree about to the part they might agree about? In my experience, having conversations with people and talking to people is uh, the best way to, you know, build relationships and build trust so that you can come to some sort of agreement or understanding or maybe even just like turn down the volume on that disagreement so that we can try and figure out some sort of compromise And I mean, compromise doesn't have to be where everybody loses or everybody uh, wins or one person or the other. We can figure out how to make this work for as many people as possible. Um, But yeah, I, I guess my background is in psychology. And so I know that trust is built from person to person. And so... Having conversations about the things that we have in common or even the things that we disagree about, if we can talk to each other Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, these like shouting matches that we're seeing, um, then I think that we have a better chance of rebuilding our relationships Mm -hmm. in the state. I'm thinking about the fact that you've been doing this work for a little bit, and I'm wondering, has it changed how you view the world or how you view the state? Uh, Not just how you think about it, but how you feel about it. Yes, definitely. And I had to 
changed how I viewed the world a lot before I got to this point, too. I had I had very strong beliefs and values and opinions, and I was realizing that just like in a relationship, sometimes in the argument, it doesn't matter if you win, and that we couldn't have real change or make things better for anybody if everybody only cares about winning. The Greater Idaho research that we did was a real turning point for me where it was like you could see the magic of, you know, when people aren't just focused on winning, then you can see how much they care about other people in the state and care about what happens to them, even if, you know, they don't agree with their choices or opinions. Omri, thank you for the work. Thanks for talking with us. I hear lots of areas to be hopeful, uh, also areas to be concerned about. <laughs> yeah. Do you yeah. feel hope and concern uh, warring within you as you do this stuff? Oh, yes. All the time. Um, and, and, you know, even besides in all of the disagreements, even more so in the assumptions that people make about one another. And... Yeah, they have ideas about how they think someone from some part of the state or uh, from some gender or racial or ethnic group, how they're going to answer a question. And so much of the time, they're wrong. And so, like, like we were talking about, when you see somebody walking down the street, you really can't make that assumption. And... It's not helping our divides by doing so. We asked Oregonians about the Donation Land Act and whether that was fair to Native Americans. And um, normally people would assume that people in more liberal parts of the state, which tend to be more urban areas of the state, would be more likely to say, no, that wasn't fair. But it turns out rural Oregonians are 10 percentage points more likely to say that the Donation Land Act was unfair to Native Americans than urban Oregonians. Do you have a sense of what led to that difference in opinion? I don't know for sure. Um, somebody that I talked to in central Oregon suggested, and this would make sense to me, that people in rural areas of the state are more likely to know Native Americans. And that data point sticks out to you because it says, look, we can't make assumptions based on something like geography, and maybe actually a relationship will do more work than the other ways we tend to sort people? Yeah. It's likely that rural Oregonians are more likely to say no because they have relationships with these people that have had this experience. A few weeks after my conversation with Omri, Oregon Values and Belief Center released findings from a study about divides in Oregon. They found that Oregonians aren't optimistic about overcoming national or local divisions. Over 70% of us aren't sure or think it's impossible. They asked Oregonians about their perceptions of historical policies that impacted inequality in Oregon. 
Most Oregonians agree that past policies like those that excluded black Americans from home ownership and the Donation Land Act were unfair to people from communities of color. It's noteworthy that Oregonians living in rural parts of the state are more likely to say the Donation Land Act was not fair to Native Americans than those living in urban areas. The survey also asked about democracy. Both Democrats at 80% and Republicans at 76% feel democracy is more at risk now, with three-quarters of us saying it's become worse in the past few years. If these statistics resonate with you, raise questions, spark ideas, please let us know at the detour at oregonhumanities.org. Eddie Melendrez is an artist, activist, boxer, and city councillor in Ontario, Oregon, a city of just over 11,000 people in what's called the Treasure Valley. Ontario is just on the Oregon side of the border with Idaho, not too far from Boise. We reached out to Eddie for his perspective as a younger decision maker in a rural town that shares divides remarkably similar to those in Portland, nearly 400 miles away. Serious splits on issues like homelessness, cannabis, city budget, city leadership. Responding to why he became a city councilman, Eddie says, if I don't do it, who will? This honest comment felt like an important lesson to take away. There's a lot to be learned from Eddie Melendrez. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Eddie, first, thanks for joining us. And second, can you tell us about the combination of things you're working on in Ontario? Well, I'm an artist and uh, I'm a mentor, a city councilman. I'm one year into the city council position, a little over one year, so just still trying to adjust and learn my role and the dynamics of city council. Do you feel like uh, you're becoming aware of how divides show up in the city council work you're doing? Yeah, I feel like I'm becoming aware as far as just the way certain people make decisions, you know, and I'm real careful to before I say like like make it like a right versus wrong or anything like that. Sure. Like, I'm just learning like everybody has their role in the community. I'm really kind of understanding that you know that that they're just doing the best that they thought that the, the citizens that elected those city council members they're just doing what that what they what they told their uh, constituents they were going to do. So I kind of I try not to take it to like too hard, you know, like mm-hmm. too hard if I, if nothing goes my way. Usually I lose, like whatever I vote for on council many times, like I'm on the losing end, you know, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm just like one, one vote or one of two votes. Where do you feel like the tension comes to bear in the stuff coming in front of city council? Uh, there's a lot of stuff, but one of the main ones that, that, that come to mind right now is a homelessness issue in Ontario. We have like this weird dynamic of, um, you know, we're a rural city, but then we have, I think we have the many of the problems of like a, like a bigger city and of like homelessness and drug abuse and mental illness. And, and then we have, we have the marijuana that came into Ontario, I think in 2019, our first dispensary was opened up. Mm-hmm. So that's bringing a bunch of money that the city deeply needed uh, mm-hmm. to pay off our purge debt, which is a public retirement mm-hmm. uh, employee system that we were falling behind in. And because we we're falling behind in that, those payments as a city, 
we had to cut the rec district. We had to cut. We were going to cut the library. We cut the pool. So that was always a touchy topic. Topic, but with the homeless going back to the homelessness, like I said, was uh, we have a site that was <clears throat> set up by a community in action, a local nonprofit, <laughs> and it got real touchy because they put it in a, right in the middle of a neighborhood, um, the the homelessness shelter, like a tiny. It's a tiny home shelter. <laughs> And with, I think, like 15 or 16 homes on it, these sh- sh- tiny shelter homes. And b- before that, they had it on another um, location behind uh, a business. And the business didn't want it there, so then they moved it to another location right next to a church. And then, But then the community members didn't want it there, you know, because they were saying they were afraid of uh, crime. And it was a really tough spot to be in. We had people that were advocating for homeless, the homeless uh, homelessness uh, issues that we had in Ontario. And they were really upset. Like, I mean, they, they were there. They were there uh, in, in numbers at the city council meeting. They packed the room. And then we had the other people that packed the room that were against it. So it was like whatever way we decided, it was just like it was not – it was a like, you know, you were going to lose – somebody was going to get mad. Somebody was going to really, be really upset. But in the end, I just decided, like, well, I don't want to put these people out on the streets. Um, that's what's going to happen. So that's why I voted the way I did. Do you feel like you have the sense that your community is more connected than you thought before or more divided than you thought before? In other words, how has your view about the unity or the connection in your community changed since you've entered this role on the city council? I think, honestly, it feels more divided. Uh, we have a lot, of, like, the, like the marijuana issue, uh, we have a huge, I think Ontario is like the third grossing marijuana revenue, tax revenue in the state of Oregon. Hmm. It's pretty high up there, even though we're one of the smallest, you know, in poorest counties. So um, that was another big issue that gets people really upset because we have a lot of money and the, the city council, before I came along, they their their um, their goals were to pay, out, pay down the purse debt. I just see a lot of people are really upset that the way we do things. And, and I think just social media kind of gives people the power to like really get on and really just uh, voice their opinions, but without really learning the issues or coming to to a city council meeting or coming to a committee meeting or like jumping on a committee or, you know, we, we always have uh, committee openings. You know, we always need people who are our, our budget committee or diversity committee, you know, more than complain, what are you going to do about it? That's what I kind of feel like telling people, you're going to run for city council you know, that's what you need to do, you know, so then you can have a say. You talked about some of your art, arts work before. Am I right that you also uh, have been doing some boxing and training people to box? Yeah, so for, I've been helping people since I came here in 2006 from California. I was, you know, I, I didn't know anybody. I actually grew up in Vail, Oregon when I was a little kid. I was born in Pasco, Washington, mm-hmm. where my family used to be in this area working the fields. So then my first memories were in Vail, Oregon, which is outside of Ontario. And those are my first memories as a kid. And I really, I thought it was like the greatest experience. I thought I was living like, like the greatest life. And I came back in 2006 and then uh, I was like, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any community members. I didn't really. So I just started looking for like the local gyms in Ontario. And I, I, I just went there and I started helping. And then one of the gym uh, people, he knew my mom when she was a little kid. So it was like, we had like the little connections where it got me into the gym and I just started helping kids and kind of training. That's what really opened the doors for me to be like somebody better when I started coaching those kids. Yeah. Because I was just a shy kid and we were dealing with like, with the, you know, the trauma of moving to California and like, hmm. but I'd never adjusted, you know, I was always scared to go to school. I was just always living out of a place of like fear. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about 
fear and also being a shy kid. And then you got into boxing, yeah. which is which is a pretty intense yeah. way to confront fear. And probably every time you step in the ring, you have to yeah. feel it. And now you've stepped into an even more visible, more public, sometimes more combative sphere, that is local oh, politics. Yeah. And l- let me just ask, yeah. are there ways that your work in politics feels at all like what you were doing when you were boxing more? Exactly. So what, what I would tell the kids all the time, I would tell them like, hey, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable when you're in the ring, you know. And I, I'm learning like all the things that I've taught the kids are my, I call them my kids, right? But some are older. I have 24-year-old okay. youth and that I've known since they were like 13 on probation that were in the boxing club and all that. And then I have little eight-year-old kids, right? But I would tell them like, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, and I would tell them that. And then like now I'm living it. Okay, now all the things you taught your kids, man, you gotta really live it. You know, you gotta you gotta put you gotta put your money where your mouth is. So, everything that I've kind of like learned is like just see things coming slowly, and you know, don't don't get upset. You know, I'm just like really living it. You know, so it's like more than just what I told them. Like when you look within yourself to do this work in public, amid division, what do you most have to call on from within you to do it well? If I don't do it, then who else is going to do it, you know? Mm. And then I could easily quit, but then there won't be that different perspective on in those positions, in those roles on city council. The other thing is, you know, I was on a diversity committee, and I made the comment. I'm the ex-official member for the diversity committee, and I made the comment, like, oh, one day I hope that our work on, on this diversity committee will trickle up to city council and city, and like, the city staff. Because mm. I, I, I see that it, there's, there's not... It's not a it's not a big diverse uh, staff mm-hmm. or city council and one of the other members of the committee he gave me pushback and he says it's kind of hard for us to have a diverse committee and a diverse uh, council and a diverse staff if those people don't step up and I was like oh you know I kind of he hit me he hit me with like the one two you know uh-huh. and I was like oh okay and then I, I kind of felt like the tension was building you know and I was like oh, okay and then I let him finish and then I said well. You know, you're right. You know, I said, you're right. I go, because I, I get frustrated with my own people as well. I can only speak for my own people, like Mexican-American people. I was like, that they don't step up enough, you know, because a lot of that outreach I do, I, like what I was telling you about telling the kids, like, what are you going to do about it? I've, I've been reaching out to a lot of people in the community that I think would be make good city council women mm-hmm. or men mm-hmm. and make good community members. And I tell them, you should think about joining, you know. First I tell them, like, let's go have a coffee or something like that. Uh-huh. I don't hit them with it. But I'm like, you should join this committee or you should really think about joining the council and then they always get like alright well alright all right, well I don't want you know like I think the main thing is that we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing and I'm like well damn I don't many times I don't look I look like I don't know what I'm doing up there either I'm learning too right along with everybody like that's part of being a public servant like uh-huh. you gotta do it you gotta do it so I get really frustrated but like, I feel like if I don't do it like then who else is gonna do it you know and when that committee member was telling me like you know, and I, I kind of gave him a brief history. I was like, well, you, you can't disregard the fact of like 300 years of discrimination and racism and things like that. I go, yeah, and then now we're in a race that we've been, you're expecting us to be at a, at the same level as you when we're in a race that we've been lapped 300 times. You know, I go, because mm-hmm. say if everything was right since like the late 60, 60s and the 70s, where we had like the farm workers' right movement by like the, the, the United Farm Workers and we had like uh, the civil rights movement by Martin Luther King. Things like that. I go, so say it was, it's equal since then where we were allowed to vote and allowed to get, you know, equal rights in, in, in the, in the labor force and all that. And I go, and say it's equal since then. I go, so in the last 40 years, you expect us to be at the same, at the same level as you. I go, so there's going to be things that we're dealing with too as a community with trauma, things like that. I kind of just made sure I told him that. But in the end, he's right. Like, 
and that's why I get frustrated with uh, with like people that don't want to step up either. You know, I'm like, I'm not saying that everybody's calling, but it just gets really tough. But as far as like going back to what where it pulls at me is like, if I don't do it, who's gonna do it? And I go, I want to break that cycle for like even my daughter, and then those kids that come up behind me, I want them to see it. Like it's regular for you to be in a position of uh, of authority, and you could be that person too. And I want to be, I want to make it so regular for like my daughter, because my daughter's nine years old. That she just sees it like I want her to just to go go into life and and then be believe that she could be whatever she wants to be like a principal a, a senator or president of the United States where she could you know where she sees her dad doing it and that's one of the main reasons I'm doing it. So you've been in this position for it sounds like a little over a year now. Uh, what's the what's the best uh, experience? What is there a maybe not the best? Is there a single moment that stands out for you as pretty exceptional and confirming your desire to get into this public work? Some of the youth I talked to, right? But there's one kid that I've known since he had to be about 13. And, uh, you know, it, he, I was telling him like, hell no, man, I'm, I'm quitting this, man. This, this, this ain't no, well, nothing like a thousand to be, you know? And then he was telling me like, nah, Eddie, you can't quit, you know, you can't quit. You know, he's like, we need people like you. So I, I people keep telling me that. Yeah. Like, oh, we need people like you on the council. And they keep telling me that, right? And I'm like, well, that one moment really got me when he told me that. And I was like, and I was like, nah, I don't know, man. And, and I stayed on there, right? So, and I remembered, and I came back and I told him, and he works at a gas station. And I told him, I was like, hey, remember when you told me, man, to, to keep going? I said, you know, I go, that's one of the reasons I kept going. You know, like, I didn't I didn't step down. I didn't quit. And, and you know, he got all excited. He got all happy, right? And then we we go into further discussion because he's he's getting promoted uh, to uh, to like an assistant manager. Nice. And you know, this kid comes from like like a rough background, and he was telling me like, "Oh, Eddie, man, you know how tough it is. Like, I feel like these some of these employees they're just testing me." And he's a man, and it's just hard. Like, and, and I don't know what to do. And I was like, "Well, you know, that's where you gotta learn how to use your words. You know, like the lessons. Like, he's teaching me lessons, and I'm teaching him lessons. You know. So it's like those are like those are like the little, the little things that I'm like, okay, I'm doing the right thing and keep going, you know? Yeah. And the other thing is like, I do get a lot of people like that tell me through a message or through an email or through a letter at city council that they're, that I'm doing good things and I'm, they're glad I'm on city council and they thank me for the way I vote. Like some of those things that I lose on, right. They thank me. Oh, thank you for voting that way. So I do get a lot of those things that make mm. me feel good, you know, that really kind of like keep me going and, and let me know like, okay, I'm doing the right thing, you know? It's, but at the same time, makes makes me kind of sad too, because I'm like, it's, uh, it's, people shouldn't feel that way, you know. They shouldn't feel like, well, we only have one that we really believe in, and they should feel like the whole council, like they should, they they should feel like they believe in the whole council, like the council has the best interest for the city, you know. And so that kind of makes me sad too, a little way, like, well, why why don't they, uh, you know, I shouldn't, this pressure shouldn't just fall on Eddie, you know. Mm -hmm. They should feel like that about other councilmen too, like. Yeah, it's interesting the hope that they would look at a council and think they're all doing their part, even if they're representing different opinions or different groups than my own. Also, I guess I want to note that as I was listening to you, how much you emphasize the move from force to using your words. Yeah. And it seems to me those two things go together. Like, how are we going to work on divides? Well, leadership, how are we going to do that? Well, instead of being bigger or tougher, we're going to use our words. And you've talked about patience and stamina a lot as well. Um, yeah. One, and so first I want to say thank you. Uh, just a big thanks for the commitment and the patience and using your words and sticking at it like your, like your friend encouraged you to do. Last thing I yeah. want to ask is when you 
describe that picture, the hope that people will look at the city council and say, yeah, they're kind of all working on this together. What do you think would be the most important thing you could do to help people move towards that picture of all of you working together? There was a couple months back where I was kind of getting frustrated where I was like taking a bunch of losses, right? And I started kind of going after one of my councilmen, like uh, some of the ways that they were making, uh, you know, comments or they were like, I would just get really picky with like, they were, they were, you know, cause in council, we asked for permission to speak first. Like, you know, you don't just speak, you say, uh, Mr. President, or if it's the mayor, you say, may I speak? And then they allow you to speak. Well, one of the councilmen was like, uh, he was just speaking. Right. And I was like, uh, and then I called, I was like, I kind of called him out on it. Like, well, are, are we allowed just to speak whenever we want to? Or, or cause I, cause to me, honestly, I'm just waiting my turn. Like mm-hmm. I'm waiting my turn, like everybody else. And I raise my hand and then sometimes the person on the other side gets their hand raised before you. So then you got to wait for them and you're just waiting your turn. And I was kind of getting frustrated. Like, okay, so every time you talk, you're going to just talk, you know, it's kind of like one of those things like in the, like in the kindergarten class, uh-huh. like I'm waiting my turn, man. Like I'm, I want to speak, you know? So I was, I started like calling him out on some of those things. Like, are you allowed to speak right now? Or, you know, are you, do you have to wait your turn like everybody else? And then it's like, I'm trying to tell another grown person this, another, he's about 60, 70 years old. And I'm trying to like tell him that. And I, then I realized like, and I apologized to him later publicly because I call, I, you know, on that parks committee, I, I kind of called him out publicly. And then the next city council meeting, one of my, uh, the city manager, he, he, he emailed me. He says, Oh, we talked and we, we kind of like talk about what's going on in the city. And then at the end I asked him like, Hey Adam, is there anything you think I could do better? Like, what am I doing that I need to do better? He called me out on that. He says, well, and he goes, well, you know, just some of the, some of the way that you're, you're treating the councilman, uh, you know, so-and-so. And I was like, you know, you know, you're right. You know, and I thought about it. I went home. I thought about it all night. And I was like, no, you know, I, he's right. Like, I'm just, I'm, I, what I was doing was taking out my frustration out on that councilman. So mm-hmm. in the next, in the next public city council, I, I made the, I, I apologized to him in front of everybody because that's the only way to make it right. Mm-hmm. If I, if I'm like challenging him and and like in, in a way that's not right in front of people, I need to apologize in front of people because when they've done that to me, they've uh, they've uh, they'll apologize to me in like after city council's over. But I'm like it doesn't feel right because uh-huh. if you if you embarrass me or call me out in front of the city council Facebook Live and all that, you should apologize Facebook Live. So I was like, if that's what I feel is right, I'm gonna do that for that mm-hmm. councilman. Eddie, that's, uh, it's both a great story on its own, and I think it's reflective of the way you're doing all of this. Um, it gets back to what we were talking about before, about the difficulty of losing and um, yeah. how to, uh, to apologize, and not just apologize, but apologize publicly. And that you even yeah. asked the person for feedback when you said, can you tell me what I can do better? I just feel like there's so much yeah. in there for how we can all work to navigate the divides in our community. And I want to... I want to say a big thanks for how you're stepping up and the way you continue to step up uh, and what you model. Yeah. Let me ask one last thing, and that is, as you are, you know, walking out of here or walking into the next city council meeting, do do you think there will be any one question on your mind? Can you think of any question that that seems to keep surfacing for you? Regarding, say, what I want for myself or regarding like what I want from the council, what I think I could see better. I'm not sure. Uh, How about either the council or your community? A question related to either the council or your community that seems to keep coming up for you. Maybe the, for the community, I would feel like that, that they could step up more. I think that it would be better. I understand that people have work schedules, things like that, right? They have families. 
that kind of stuff. Like we all have families and we all have work schedules, right? Because that's one of the, the the that's one of the the concerns I get when I try to reach out to people. But I don't know. I think on the bigger scale, just for the community to really get involved and really see what part they could do, you know, and like what part they have to play in like making our city better. Like before the before somebody just you know expresses their concerns or like or, or a complaint. Like just really looking within first and see like what can you do? Mm-hmm. What can you do to make it better? Like what more than just the complaint, can you offer like time or to volunteer or something uh to be part of that city, you know? I think that's probably the main thing that I could think of right now as far as just doing your part for the community. What divides have you observed or been a part of in your community? Could ideas explored in this episode help you figure out ways to bridge difficult conflicts? Let us know what divides you're navigating or anything else you want to tell us by emailing us at thedetour at oregonhumanities.org. Even better, join us at one of our upcoming workshops or events. Visit oregonhumanities.org to check out our calendar. The Detour is made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Adam Davis. Kieran Bond is our producer. Our editor and engineer is Dave Friedlander. Our assistant producers are Alexandra Powell-Bugden, Karina Brisky, and Ben Waterhouse. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.